Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Today, we have an interview with Craig Greenberg. He's a candidate for mayor of Louisville. He's running as a Democrat. Um, you know, he's raised the most money. He has headquarters. He has pretty substantial staff. He's he's definitely running very hard for the office. He invited us down to his headquarters there on Story Avenue uh, in the Butchertown Market. We we went down there, saw it, and talked to him. Very, very good conversation. Talked to us for 35 minutes or so. You know, I, I walked away pretty impressed. Uh, what, what, what did you think, Jasmine? Yeah, I, I thought it was really cool to get to do an in-person interview again. We haven't done that in a long time. And not a lot of people invite us to their headquarters, so I'm glad. I'm happy to just be invited. Yeah, yeah. I think the last time we did it was, uh, uh, you know, I don't even think, even think you were there. It was with uh, Adam Edelin when he was running for governor yeah, in 2019. Yeah, so, it was. Uh, same campaign manager. Could be part of the part of a trend there. <laughs> uh, anyways, the, uh, the yes, I was very happy with, with the conversation we had with Craig Greenberg. Um, I think we only have really one candidate left to interview on the Louisville mayor's race, but you know, great field. Craig today was a it was very very good on uh, talking about the issues. Was able to very clearly had a very good grasp on what he was talking about. So definitely check out that at the back half of the show. But before we do that, we're going to talk a lot about the devastating tornadoes that hit Western Kentucky this week. Um, of course, uh, it's a big story, uh, and of course, a big tragic story. So uh, we we had to talk about that for sure. Uh, Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about some updates regarding some policing stories that we've been following, and we have a COVID update. So, without any further ado, uh, let's talk about these devastating tornadoes. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard by now, but on Friday night, Kentucky experienced one of the worst disasters in our history when a series of four or so tornadoes tore through much of Western Kentucky. The the destruction was was widespread. The, the biggest tornado traveled more than 200 miles. I think it actually started in like Arkansas came through like the mm-hmm. Boot Hill of Missouri all the way up through uh, the purchase in, in Kentucky and went all the way to Breckenridge County, which is just, you know, not that far from Louisville. It's a that was a huge distance. I mean, uh, I, I heard somebody say it was like if you traveled from Louisville to Chicago, that's how far that tornado went, which is just just wild. More than a dozen counties experienced terrible damage. Mayfield, which is in Graves County, saw a tornado tear through its downtown, flattening nearly every structure. And damage was damage was extremely widespread in other communities. Some of the larger communities that had significant damage including, included uh, Dawson Springs and Bowling Green. I'm sure you've been seeing lots of pictures and stories coming out of those areas. Um, non-tornado damage, just from storms, you know, went all the way as far north as Shelby and Oldham County, which are, you know, borders Louisville. And, and there were some folks that had... Some damage, uh, you know, trees knocked down and stuff, even in, in Jefferson County. So big swath of the state that saw some, some significant damage. And the tornadoes, you know, uh, as they do every time go through populated areas like this, they killed a lot of people. As of Tuesday evening, and I have not seen an update on Wednesday, 74 people were confirmed dead. And there were more than 100 people that were unaccounted for. And I'm sure you've seen some harrowing stories in, in just about every newspaper, radio station and television station across the state. And really, so many of these devastating stories have been have been hard to read. But I do think it's really important to tell these types of stories just, you know, so people feel seen and heard in the midst of this horrible tragedy that's happened to them. One of the main areas of discussion in the midst of the tragedy has been a candle factory in Mayfield. The tornado tore through the factory, completely destroying it. And at the time that the tornado hit, 110 people were working there. And in the immediate aftermath of the storms, it was feared that nearly all of those people were dead. 
However, it only appears now that, that eight people out of the 110 have died, so there's been some confusion there. And, and there's been some interesting stories that have come out about the Candle Factory itself. It, the Candle Factory faced significant scrutiny in the days since the storm. Uh, the NBC, the, the you know television news outlet, they published an investigation into the factory, which included the quote, um, you know, this is a quote that somebody in the piece was saying about uh, his job. He says, if you leave, you're more than likely to get fired. Um I heard that with my own ears. And this is what somebody said that they overheard managers tell four workers uh, while they were working at the candle factory on Friday. And there's another quote I wanted to read. It's like, I asked to leave and they told me I'd be fired. Even with the weather like this, you're still going to fire me. Uh, and that was somebody, somebody different in the same NBC piece. So the, the factory management has pushed back against this claim. They said that there has been, you know, a significant worker shortage that anyone could have left at any time and retained their job. And that was their policy. And that was their policy because they couldn't afford to fire anybody. They needed all the workers they could get to make all the candles for the holiday season. That sounds kind of plausible to me. But I also know that the policies of upper management don't always make their way down to floor managers who are having conversations with employees. And it also doesn't mean that they didn't say that. Like maybe they did say, yeah. If you maybe someone did say, if you leave, you'll be fired. Maybe they wouldn't have followed through with that. But yeah, and, uh, the threat may have been there, or or at least they felt like it was there. Yeah, and based on my experience in spaces like these and around people who work in areas like this today, even still, it's it's like you know you see you see like the floor manager and you see the person who's the management who's working with you every day. And their, their rules are the ones that really matter. Even if upper management has a different set of rules. So there's a lot of questions that are opened up there. I am not convinced at all by the upper management uh, setting this policy um, that, you know, lower management didn't say these things. Um, There is going to be an investigation into it. Anytime anybody dies on the job, there is an investigation that's done by the state so the governor did announce that that was going to happen, and I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some sort of federal investigation into this as well. So the immediate response from state government was pretty intense. The National Guard was impacted or was was en route to the impacted area before you know the sun was up on Saturday. 448 members of the Guard working in, were working in Western Kentucky, as well as employees of the Transportation Cabinet and the Department of Forestry. In addition, state parks and other resources were being used right away to help house people who'd lost their home. So, you know, right as soon as the storm was gone, uh, resources and aid was brought to bear for the people who had lost so much already. State government set up a relief fund for people to donate to. So Governor Bashir announced that the first expenditure from that fund would be for burial expenses for all the people who died in the tornadoes. He said that the state government was actually going to go ahead and find all these people and that nobody was going to even need to apply at all. First Lady Brittany Bashir announced a toy drive. You know, it's something I didn't think about right away. But of course, pretty quickly after this happened, I did think about that this is really close to Christmas and, and tornadoes yeah, certainly I destroyed about that too. Yeah, like the tornadoes took people's Christmas trees, Christmas presents, all their decorations. That that was part of what got destroyed. Um, and, and that's that's really sad. Uh, and and uh, in order to, you know, do something about that, First Lady Brittany Bashir put this toy drive together, which once in praise today from President Biden. We'll get to that in a second. So many of the counties uh, that were significantly impacted by this tornado are are agricultural counties. This is, you know, the heart of Kentucky's agricultural industry is kind of the Penny Ryle region there in western Kentucky. And the tornadoes, you know, in addition to killing a lot of people, also killed a significant amount of livestock. 
which, you know, there are lots of challenges with dead livestock because first and foremost, that's the income that farmers have to depend upon for their livelihood. Um, and sometimes that is not, you know, that, that takes a long time for them to to uh, to earn, sometimes even years if you invest in, um, you know, cows or or, or larger livestock, you know, it could be years before those pay off. And if that animal, a, a large number of those animals die, that's a huge tragedy for you, something that you um, are going to have to deal with for, for years to come. And then also, you know, they're dead bodies that have to be cleaned up and taken care of in, in kind of like rural and open spaces. So that's another pretty significant, um, uh, you know, challenge that, that, that communities down there are facing. And, and the state government's helping to do that. Other states uh, around us and far away are sending resources to help, especially skilled labor around power and, and water outages, people who can do that kind of work to help restore um, those needed utilities to the people who live in Western Kentucky. Governor Bashir clearly struggled with the emotional impact of these tornadoes during much of the week. So Governor Steve Bashir is from Dawson Springs, and Steve Bashir's parents lived out their lives in, in that community in Western Kentucky. And Governor Amity Bashir spoke at length about the devastation of the places that he spent lots of time in as a child with clear personal pain. And, you know, this is an experience that a lot of Kentuckians are familiar with who, um, like me and like Governor Bashir, like grew up in central Kentucky in Louisville, Lexington area or anywhere here who had parents who came from a different part of Kentucky. Um, and, and, you know, I, I saw a lot of my own experience and I just thought about like if this had happened in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, you know, what I would be feeling. And I think it would be very much the same um, as as what, what Governor Bashir was talking about when he we talked about Dawson Springs. So really, really sad stuff and, and very painful to watch the governor talk um, with such pain about, about what happened in these tornadoes. So the state government's done a lot, but the federal government has also responded very quickly to the devastation. So Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FEMA Administrator Deanna Criswell visited Kentucky actually over the weekend. So this the stor- storms were out on Saturday morning, and before the weekend was over, some of these two very high-ranking officials in the federal government were in Kentucky surveying the disaster. President Biden, pretty much immediately after those people came to Kentucky, approved a request to declare a major disaster. That declaration, as opposed to just, I guess, I guess like a regular disaster, that frees up a significant amount of federal money that can be used to fund cleanup and recovery. So the major disaster declaration allows for federal funds to support temporary housing and home repairs, low-cost loans to cover uninsured property losses, funding for emergency work and hazard mitigation measures. And I think I heard the president, actually, while he was in Kentucky today, um, say that the first 30 days of the cleanup would be totally funded by the federal government. That's an ask that Governor Bashir made of wow. the federal government and, and President Biden said they were going to come through with that. So so that's good. Uh, you know, that's a, a need that we have after a tragedy. Um, and it is I mean, that's what the government is for. Even the, the staunchest libertarian would say, you know, cleanup after a major disaster like this is probably something that the government should be doing. President Biden was in Kentucky today on Wednesday. And he received a briefing about the storm in Fort Campbell, and then he went to visit both Dawson Springs and Mayfield. You know, obviously, the president doesn't need to be in Kentucky in order to receive a briefing about the tornadoes. But, uh, you know, I I think he was here to extend support and to care for grieving families. That's a trait which he's really well known for, having experienced a significant amount of personal tragedy in his own life. You know, I I I saw a lot of videos of him providing that kind of care today. Really powerful stuff. Him, you know, just giving hugs and, and shaking hands and, and 
talking with people who had experienced this kind of devastation down in Dawson Springs, I think is where I saw the videos from. So, you know, that that's that's what a president does. That's what a president's supposed to do. That's a big part of that job. And, and President Biden was here doing it. The entire federal delegation from Kentucky expressed thanks to President Biden for expediting the declaration of the major disaster. All but one member of Kentucky's federal delegation to the federal government is a Republican, different than the party of Governor Bashir and President Biden. It was very clear that Senator McConnell was behind the effort to express that support. Um, but, you know, he was able to bring pressure to bear, I'm sure, to get even Senators Paul and, and Representative Massey to sign this letter. Um, both of those people have faced criticism because they have opposed aid like this to disasters mm-hmm. in the past hopefully they will see their error in their ways moving forward um so that was good and and i you know a little bit of a display of bipartisanship um andy Bashir and president biden um we're with jamie comer who's this you know the u.s representative for that area uh today in in dawson springs and uh you know andy Bashir expressed support and and thanks to uh, all of the federal delegation who has been working with him and working with the president on this on this disaster. So so that was what was going on with the federal government. You know, this has been a really unusual situation. It's it's very unusual for a, a storm like this to happen in Kentucky in December. In fact, nothing like this has ever happened before. You know, randomness yeah. is a very major factor in weather, but there are some indications that climate change played a pretty significant role in the storm. So uh, storms like these have increased the visibility of meteorological research that has been published over the past few years that says that over the past 40 years, Tornado Alley, which is where most of the the most number of tornadoes happen in the state, is shifting to the east. There's kind of all these little zones where um, tornadoes can thrive because of the topographical nature of the area. And like this area of western Kentucky, Arkansas, and down to Mississippi, this is one of them. But um, it has kind of started to overtake the Texas, Oklahoma, and, and Nebraska alley for tornadoes um, that has been, you know, the, the, the ecological or the, the place where most of the tornadoes has happened. So we are starting to see uh, the number of tornadoes in our part of the country rise significantly. And, and that probably um, will only be exacerbated as the effects of climate change just start to accelerate. There has been significant effort in areas that experience terrible weather events like tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes to build structures that are more resilient to storms. Um, You know, if you talk to civil engineers or even any kind of building engineer in Florida and California, in in Texas, South Texas, they, they build in a different way than we build here because of the likelihood of storms. Uh, that hasn't been a huge priority of places like Western Kentucky because these events had been rare. But, you know, with the changes that are likely to continue, I, re- I, I personally think that as we do the rebuilding around this storm, we should build with these resilient mindsets uh, that, that will help us to, to create structures that can stand up to the next tornadoes because it seems like it's more of a question of when and not a question of if, and we need to take whatever measures we can to make uh, the destruction less than it was this time. Recovery in Western Kentucky is going to take a long time. It's going to be really expensive. Governor Bashir says he expects that there will be more than $100 million spent in rebuilding. Several others have said that there are some areas which may never be rebuilt and are gone forever Mm -hmm. now. Um, this is really one of the most significant tragedies in Kentucky's history. So, you know, anything that you can do to help uh, is appreciated. So, you know, do it for do it for your friends in Western Kentucky and your Kentucky family that's out there. 
yeah, uh, Jasmine, you know, any, uh, what did you, where were you when you learned about the tornadoes? Did you hear like a warning uh, siren or anything in Louisville on Friday night or Saturday morning? I didn't hear any sirens, but I knew that we were supposed to get them. And it was really scary for me. Whenever in 1996, a tornado hit my hometown, luckily, like it didn't damage my family's home or anything like that, but it damaged my school. I remember I didn't have a kindergarten graduation. <laughs> um, so like, I, I don't know. I feel like I am. I- I'm always scared about tornadoes sure. um, after going through that as a kid. And so I was really scared and and the way it was heading, it looked like it was heading Northeast. So it was a scary night for me. And I finally went to sleep. And when I woke up and and saw the devastation, like I was just gutted. It's so devastating. And like listening to people's stories about their homes getting destroyed and reading those stories. It's incredibly tragic. Yeah. It's been really, I mean, it's been interesting how many people have tornado stories, even beyond just my tornado stories, which are like, I remember going to the basement when there was a tornado warning uh, in Louisville when I was a kid, and it was really scary. Um, I mean, I've never been any close to damage like you saw in Bullitt County. I've learned that, you know, I have coworkers who are from Brandenburg that saw a very significant tornado in the 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a significant tornado in Louisville in the 70s. Um, uh, my mother has a story about that as well. Um, I was actually on the Kentucky History Podcast to talk about the tornado in Louisville in 1890. So I did a lot of research around that, too. So, you know, tornadoes uh, are, are a part of Kentucky life in Kentucky and only will be more so. But, yeah, they there's been nothing like this and no, nothing like the devastation. Uh, and it has been just so tragic reading stories, just heartbreaking stories about people dying, people being pulled away from family members in the storm like that. But. I will say the response from the government and the response from our leaders has been something that's been really heartening from all levels, from both parties. Um, moments like this are are a time to come together. And I think, you know, even though this is a time of, of great division, um, we've really done that here in Kentucky. So, yeah, I'm going to be a long time. We'll probably check in on this quite a bit as time goes along. But uh, that's it for today. Uh, Jasmine. Uh, tell us about some of the updates about the policing stories we've been following. All right. The first story is that Miles Cosgrove's termination appeal hearing continued this week. Um, today was the fourth and final day of the hearing. Going back a little bit, um, Miles Cosgrove was one of the officers involved in the killing of Brianna Taylor and one of the officers that fired shots that killed allegedly killed her and his termination appeal hearing began it it was separated into like two days a couple months ago and then two days this week um so this week deputy chief levita chavis testified on cosgrove's behalf he also testified in his own defense um and the the deputy chief also testified at joshua james's hearing she supported keeping retaining both of them. He also called a former LMPD officer who identified as a firearms expert um, to testify that Cosgrove sufficiently identified a target. The county attorney challenged this designation as a firearms expert since he was just like a former police officer. He, he There wasn't credible amount of specialized training or anything like that, but they allowed him to testify. 
Yeah, what were you going to say, Robert? I, I saw that he was like identified as a force expert too, which I don't know what that means, but that's like, I guess. Yeah, I think that they had a few different witnesses. Um, I was just kind of summarizing a couple of them. Yeah, that was, I, I don't even know what a but, force, it sounds like a Jedi. Like, yeah. I don't even, what does that even mean? That's not a term I'm familiar with, and it didn't seem like <laughs> the people that were, you know, no doing the hearing were familiar with force expert either. So yeah. it was kind of, I think that that's maybe what you're getting at is like some of the people they had to testify were um, interesting selections for, for doing this kind of thing. Yes. Um, and, and also a big, a big part of Cosgrove's argument was that this was a political firing that, you know, Yvette Gentry was brought in to do this and the deputy chief didn't get to be part of the decision and that they overheard the mayor saying he wished he could fire them and, that this was all political. Um, that was a big part of the argument that they were making. Cosgroves also said that he saw a muzzle flash and, you know, that he did identify that. Um, the county attorney arguing before the merit board argued that Cosgroves never mentioned the muzzle flash in his first two statements that he gave after um, the raid and that he didn't use that phrase until eight months later in his statement to the PSU. The board went into executive session around 2.30 today and I just checked that they upheld the termination. Yes, yeah, 5 to 2. I'm got 5 it to, two. to 2. Yeah, it was interesting. Okay. Um, I, you know, we're literally just reading this right now, but uh, it looks like the two people who voted overturned the, the termination were citizen members and all of the police officers on um, on the board voted mm-hmm. to uphold the firing, um, which I, I don't know. I don't know if that's surprising or not. It was a little surprising to me. So, But yeah, upheld. The second story is about the search warrant task force. Um, so we now have some recommendations from Daniel Cameron's search warrant task force. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about this. He created this, you know, in the wake of the killing of Breonna Taylor. And we've talked a little bit about who are the members on it. Um, and now we have their report with recommendations. And so um, some of those included recommending an electronic platform for handling warrants. Um, so LexisNexis, who is the same company that has, they have like a legal research engine. They're working on an electronic platform. Um, Troy Belcher, who's the lead developer for it, said, Everybody looks at the history when it comes to warrants. They want to see who created it. They want to see who sent it and who's looked at it. And we will definitely have that information in there. And so I really do think this is something that could be helpful because you could see not just the history of the officers, but the history of the judges who are signing the warrants and things like that. And so I do think that this has some promise you know i would have to see like what all information it contains and what it looks like but i think that this is a good recommendation sure um some of the other ones include prosecutors reviewing warrants in the absence of an emergency you know i think that this is good practice and it could potentially weed out some deficient warrants um but for the most part They'll usually say that the warrants are an emergency situation. So, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, you know, how often that'll get 
utilized. Um, but I, I think that is, is probably a good idea. Um, tracking where warrants are served was another recommendation. Um, notifying child protective services when a warrant involves a minor. Um, I do know just like anecdotally that sometimes um, when warrants involve a minor, they they seem harder to find and harder to figure out if someone has a warrant. Um, so that makes sense that that might be a recommendation. Another one was regularly updating search warrant policies. And the last one was more training. Always. Um, so, always need more yeah, training. that's all. The recommendation is always more training, right? Um, and a couple things that were not specifically recommended were um, something that a lot of people have talked about have been like specific time windows, you know, like not serving warrants at 2 a.m., that kind of thing. They didn't recommend any specific time window. Um, they just said they should serve them at times that are appropriate, um, but nothing specific there. Um, nothing really about like practices against judge shopping or anything like that, and nothing about printing judges' names, which is something we've talked about a little bit here in Louisville about how a lot of the names aren't even like legible, and so it's hard to tell who who is even signing the warrants. Um, yeah. So there weren't any mentions of that in the report, at least specifically. But you know, there's recommendations about like developing best practices and updating policies and that kind of thing. Um, but that's what we have from the search warrant task force, and uh, perhaps some of these things will be taken up in the 2022 legislative session. We'll see. And I'm sure all of the ideas that you mentioned that weren't in the recommendations will probably at least at least get mentioned uh, in, the, in the session if this is a bill that, that comes forward. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, all right. Well, before we get, at it, uh, get to our interview with Craig Greenberg, we do want to do a fast COVID update. So COVID numbers have actually been flat or declining this week. Hopefully in the next few weeks, cases will recede to a lower level. But because the Omicron variant is making its way to Kentucky if it's not here yet already. So the past week saw an average number of daily cases between 22 and 2300 cases. If this is indeed a peak, it's significantly lower than the fall wave, which crested it at higher than 4000 cases per day. Cases have not yet started to come back down, though. They've just kind of remained flat and are starting to come down slightly. So the map is still almost entirely red. There's only about 12 counties that are orange and one county that is yellow. Uh, the rest are red. Red is 25 Cases per uh, 100,000 people, orange is 10 to 25, and yellow is 1 to 10. Uh, in our urban areas, Louisville's case numbers were flat last week. Jefferson County remained at 2,200 cases, which is relatively high, but at least not a week-over-week -week increase, so mostly just a plateau. This week, we've been noting uh, the trend that we've been noting uh, about deaths in Louisville declining while case numbers ri are, are rising seems to be holding steady. Um, there were only three deaths in Louisville from COVID last week, which which is very low um, compared to where the case numbers have been recently. After seeing about a week of rising case numbers, Lexington has leveled out at about 120 cases a day. Like the state as a whole, that's a lower peak than in the fall. There was a very disturbing trend in deaths that we noted last week with several days of deaths above 60. That trend did continue through the beginning of this week, but has since come down. So the number of deaths the past three days have been 37, 28, and 14. And today, um, today we had uh, 17. So again, another another lower day uh, in terms of deaths. So uh, that's still a lot of people dying, but it's a smaller than, number than we saw last week. 
The United States as a whole passed a very grim milestone with the 800,000th total death from COVID-19 just this week. Our hospitalizations continue to rise. While it appears that cases might have crested, hospitalization lags cases, so it isn't surprising that hospitalizations are, are continuing to go up. Kentucky hospitals have about 1,300 COVID patients right now. That is still about half of 2,600, which was our fall peak. 61.4% of Kentuckians have at least one shot of the vaccine, so last week continued the trend of about a one half of a percent of Kentuckians getting vaccinated each week. If that trend holds, we will only be, uh, we'll, in one or two weeks, we will be um, at where we thought we were before we did that big correction. So um, that, that is coming up, or we'll be getting into new territory before you know it. Early research has shown that a third shot of the vaccine is really important to stopping the Omicron variant, which is going to be in Kentucky very soon. Like I said, only 16% of Kentuckians have a third shot versus 54, 54% who are fully vaccinated with at least two shots or one shot of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's really important to boost uh, boost people. Uh, I mean, only 46% of Kentuckians 65 and older have had the third shot, and, and that's a very vulnerable population, so it's going to be really, really important that that population get that third shot so that there is at least some protection from this more resistant variant that is making its way to us. Omicron is right around the corner. It's probably going to be really bad for case numbers in Kentucky and really everywhere else around the world. If you've been tracking what it's been doing in Europe, um, it is very, very scary in terms of the case numbers. The variant is able to reinfect people who have had COVID and people who have only had one or two shots of the vaccine much more easy than the Delta variant or the original COVID could. Um, yeah, so get the, get the booster if you haven't. That's the best tool that we have to fight the new variant. But given what we know about vaccine hesitancy, it's going to be trouble getting people to get a third shot, uh, much less, uh, you know, because we have so much trouble getting people just one, you know, just one shot. Um, Omicron is just as contagious as the other COVID variants. And the thing about it is that there's just so many people that don't have protection against it. Delta was extremely, it's actually more contagious than Omicron by a factor of like two or three, but there just weren't as many people who could catch it because of the protection that people had from being vaccinated or having COVID before. And that just doesn't matter nearly as much to Omicron. So the world of people that Omicron can can actually infect is just so much larger than, than, than in Delta. So, so that's, you know, that's the reason why it's likely that we're going to have a lot of Omicron coming to get us very soon. Um, it's likely that our case numbers are going to skyrocket in the winter. Our early reports, though, do say that Omicron could be milder than Delta or the original COVID, but it's important to say that that is not confirmed. And even if it does turn out to be milder with such a large number of infections, the thing that we expect to happen, hospitals could still become overwhelmed. There is some hope in a tr new treatment from Pfizer, but you know, just please keep an eye on the numbers and do everything that you can to protect yourself and your family. So it wasn't such a bad COVID week for us this week, and it likely will get a little better in the, in the coming weeks, but there's something really scary on the horizon, and it's just a matter of time before it uh, gets to us. And uh, so do what you can now to protect yourself. So that's where we're at with COVID. Woof. All right. Well, uh, some really tragic stuff happening this week uh, with the tornadoes. So do what you can to, to help people out um, who need it. All right, well, let's get to our interview with Craig Greenberg. Craig Greenberg is a Democratic candidate for Louisville mayor. Mr. Greenberg worked as president of 21C Museum Hotels from 2011 until 2020, and prior to that was an attorney for Frost Brown Todd. 
He has served on the board of Republic Bank since 2008 and has served on the boards for ISCO Industries, which is a little company that makes pipes. And he has served on the board of trustees at the University of Louisville from 2014 to 2017. In addition, he was a major investor in both the Museum Plaza and Whiskey Road developments in downtown Louisville. This is his first run for public office. Currently, Mr. Greenberg is a co-owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling and leads the Greenberg Group, which focuses on developing or redeveloping urban real estate projects that improve communities. And he's also an avid runner. So, Craig Greenberg, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to bring you along uh, and very excited to be here in your space talking to you. Welcome. That's very cool here in uh, Butchertown neighborhood here in Louisville. Yeah, right across from 1,200 UFC workers working hard yeah. round the clock. Yeah, great place to that's, be. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so you have raised the most money of all the candidates running for this office. You've got a slate of endorsements from state and city leaders. You have a significant operation, uh, including, you know, this spot where we are right now, um, and, and lots of staff focused on electing you as mayor. So it's really clear that you want to be the mayor. Uh, that is true. But I am, we are really interested in hearing you say why you want this office. You know, what draws you to this job? What is, and, 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 you know, this is one of the, the most difficult public service jobs you can do in the whole state. So what attracted it to you and why do you want to do it? So it really goes back to, I think, my childhood. And growing up, I'm Jewish. And one of the concepts that really sticks out to me for my Jewish upbringing is a concept that in Hebrew is tikkun olam. That translates into repair the world. And that's always been a concept that has really been important to me. It's been important to my wife, Rachel. We've tried to teach it to our two boys. And it's, you know, the basic notion that every day in ways large and small, personally or professionally, we try to make the world a better place when we go to bed than when we woke up that morning. And that's always something I've tried to live, live by. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I had a fantastic adventure helping to start and build 21C Museum Hotels. I traveled around the country developing projects, creating jobs, transforming neighborhoods, revitalizing neighborhoods, went to so many different cities, saw things that were working great, saw things that weren't working well. Lots of ideas about what makes cities vibrant, what makes cities safe, what makes city places, cities places that people want to live, grow, and raise their families. And so when I started thinking about what I wanted to do next, this notion of repair the world kept coming back to me. Because I believe, and I think many people in our city believe right now, that our city is in great need of repair. It's in need of repair. It's in need of revitalization. It's in need of unification. And I want to be a part of that solution. I'm a very action-oriented person. And I remember growing up um, on a field trip that we went in, the, in Hebrew school when I was in middle school. And a young mayor, Jerry Abramson, had just gotten elected. And I saw the energy and excitement that he was bringing to that job and what he was able to do as mayor of the city, a smaller city at the time, uh, and what he was able to do, creating, hiring great people, having a really strong team of people from all different backgrounds, and what you can do with a good team of people to move a city forward in a new direction. And so that's what I, why I want to run for mayor. That's why I am running for mayor. That's why I think I have the relevant experience to do may, be mayor and why I think that working with a team of people from across the city, we can do amazing things. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, and that's that's a great answer. I think that uh, it's it's a it's a big answer, and we also really like it when people talk about their faith because we're the people of faith as well. So that's it's very cool. So all right, so fair or not, you know, there have been a lot of comparisons that people have drawn between you and Greg Fisher's first candidacy back in 2010. You know, you're both white men who've been involved in development who have never held public office before running for mayor. Do you think this comparison is fair? And, and what would you do to differentiate yourself? Uh, from the current mayor and the administration that he's had for the past 12 years? Well, fair or unfair, it's a question I get occasionally. I actually don't get that question nearly as much now as I used to. And I think that's in large part because people ask me that question before they get to know me. I think as people get to know me for who I am, they understand I'm my own unique person who has a lot of relevant experience and strengths and energy to bring to the office of mayor. And so I think it's most helpful being the forward-looking person I am just to tell you a little bit more about me and let people draw their own conclusions. I'm really just starting about my family and who I am. Uh, My grandparents, my grandfather was a New York City firefighter, member of the union, is someone who I really looked up to and was close to growing up before he passed. My other set of grandparents fled Nazi Germany in the face of Nazi oppression and escaping the Holocaust. My parents were both started their career as public school teachers in New York City. They were both members of the teacher union in New York and walked the picket lines in 1968 for better pay for teachers. And that issue of education, you'll see, is a common theme in my life. I married a school teacher. Rachel was a public school teacher at Wheatley Elementary School here. She taught English as a second language in West End before she she left that career. And so... I've always been focused on education. I come from a background that prioritizes education. And so that's always been something that's been very meaningful to me. And so I'm really focused on this uh, more about public service than anything else. I'm not interested in politics. I'm not interested in a career beyond mayor in elected office. I think it's important that people come into public service. They try to make as big of a difference as quick as possible and then let other people get involved. I said on the day I announced that I wouldn't serve more than two terms. And I think that's healthy, not just for mayor, but for other offices. And so I'm a Jewish kid who grew up going to Jefferson County Public Schools. And now I'm excited to give back to my community. One other area that I think is very important for people to know about me is I believe in speaking up and acting on what you believe, regardless of what the consequences might be, regardless of who you're standing up to or for, and to make things happen. I was on the board of trustees at the University of Louisville for three years. I, I got on the board because I really cared, as I mentioned, about education. I wanted to help UofL continue a trajectory to be a phenomenal research institution that serves this community and the surrounding areas and, and really teaches our next generation. Shortly after I got there, we realized that there were a lot of financial irregularities going on. There was excessive compensation being paid. There was no transparency even to the board of directors. And so a few colleagues and I stood up, and I'm proud that I led that fight for transparency at the university, uh, for financial accounting standards that I think were important for a public university. And regardless of, we didn't know how that would end. There were many people who told us, Don't do this. You're going to ruin your career. You're going to make a lot of enemies. Well, I don't care because I knew that was the right thing to do. And that was in UofL's best interest. That was in the city's best interest. And I'm going to take that same fight, that same importance of of conviction to being mayor of Louisville, not just for me, 
but for everyone in the city. So at the top of the show, you know, we talked a little bit about your career and it's included a lot of work that intersects with local government, even though this is your first run for office. So tell us a little bit about how your different jobs and those boards that you've served on have prepared you for the job of being mayor. Sure. Well, I think just going back to UofL for one second, one thing that I took away from my experience on the UofL Board of Trustees is that transparency is critical for public organizations and that I actually think transparent organizations make stronger organizations. And so that's something that will be very important to me in every area of city government, whether it's the police department or whether it's any department in city government, transparency will be critically important in my administration. Um, Another area for my background is when I was an attorney, an area that I, I helped develop was I helped create some initiatives that utilized new markets tax credits. That's a federal tax credit that's been around for 15 years that's designed to encourage investments in low-income communities. So I helped a local bank at, at the time. It was called Louisville Community Development Bank located on West Broadway attract over $66 million for investment in Louisville's low-income communities. And I worked with other organizations around the country to do the same. And there I learned how to create public-private partnerships that where you could leverage private capital with public capital or vice versa to really make meaningful investments and meaningful improvements to neighborhoods. That's also relevant experience, particularly right now with all of the federal money coming into the city. That's going to be really important as we invest billions of dollars back into this community over the next several years. And one other thing that comes to mind is the importance of teamwork. I I touched on that earlier. But at 21C Museum Hotels, we started with Steve and Laura Lee's idea for a contemporary art museum hotel on the corner of 7th and Main in West Louisville, never thinking we would do more than one. Together, we built that into a company with over 1,100 employees, 10 different locations around the country. We did it with a strong team. And that is, I think, critically important for the next mayor is to assemble a strong, diverse team of people, not just diverse by race or gender, but diverse by experience, nonprofit experience in the private sector that are in government now, but people who are passionate about improving Louisville, people that bring unique experiences, people who aren't afraid to speak their mind, and most importantly, people who want to be empowered to get the job done, the people of action that are going to get to work on day one. So I think those are some experiences that I'm really excited to bring to this next job. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely think, you know, I agree with your sentiment about having a, having a diverse team. Um, Robert and I, you know, we've talked to a lot of candidates. We've also talked to a lot of people in office and a lot of public officials we've spoken to over the years who have come from the private industry have talked about how different public services from working in the private sector. And you talked a little bit about having some public-private partnerships, um, but how are you preparing yourself to serve as a public official after spending most of your career in the private sector? Well, Jasmine, I've been a, I've been elected before. I was senior class president at Ballard High oh, School. There you go. <laughs> I, was, I was student government president at the University of Michigan, so this isn't my first rodeo. <laughs> um, but no, in all seriousness, um, I think there are a few things that I'm doing right now on my campaign that are very important for people to understand about how I would be, how I would act and, and conduct myself as mayor. First is listening. I think it's critically important for anyone that's running for mayor, anyone who's going to be in any elected office, to do a lot of listening. 
because people across the city have great ideas. They know what the problems are. They have great ideas on the solution. And their experiences are very different than mine. And I think it's important for someone like me to be listening to people across the whole city. And so as I've met with people across the whole city, as I've been running across the whole city, one fun thing that I'm doing on my campaign is I'm running through all 623 voting precincts. As of this morning, I ran, I'm up to 299. Ooh. And I've met great people along the way. And not, whether it's through running or walking or just through meetings, is I've learned that talking to people who are going to be most impacted by the city in a particular area or have unique set of life experiences, they're the ones who I want to listen to. And so that's critically important. The other thing that I think is critically important is relationships. Just like any aspect of life, relationships are critical to making things happen, to, to being successful, whether it's successful in a personal relationship, whether it's successful in passing legislation, whether it's implementing public policy, relationships are critically important. And so I think my campaign is a reflection of that. Um, Barbara Sexton Smith, a former councilwoman, is chair of my campaign. Metro Council President David James, who was once in the race himself to be mayor, is now one of my closest friends, my biggest supporters, and we work together incredibly well. I've reached out and have met with so many on Metro Council, other elected offices across the city, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, and equally as importantly, folks that are serving us in Frankfurt. Because in Louisville, we need to have a strong working relationship with not just the executive branch, but also the legislative branch in, in Frankfurt. And even if it's from a different party than myself, we need to be able to collectively work together on issues where we can find common ground to improve Louisville. So I think listening and building strong relationships, that's who I am. It's who I've always been. And I think those are two important things that I'm going to bring to this next job. Yeah, that, that's a very important part and something that we've seen a lot as we've covered the legislature the past several years is the importance of the mayor's office here in Louisville and protecting uh, kind of our uh, integrity as a city. Absolutely. But, but, you know, all of this is a little bit abstract, and we do want to talk about some specific issues. Uh, and in this mayor's race, I think the first one that everybody wants to talk about is public safety. Um, it's the first issue on your website. Uh, and on that, your website, you know, you've listed several ideas for improving Louisville's public safety, including changes to LNPD's accountability structure, LNPD's pay and recruitment, and, you know, the ways that police interact with citizens. And, you know, those are just three of the ideas on your website. It's a pretty big list. Uh, whether or not it's uh, in that list I just gave, what what are the ideas that you think are the most important to you around public safety and why? Yeah, that is the most important issue facing our city right now is we have a violent crime crisis. We have a public safety crisis, and it is critically important. This is an issue that cannot wait for the next mayor. It's an issue that we as a community are and need to really focus on right now to make sure that everyone in Louisville not just feels safe, but is face is safe. So I'm intending to go all in on public safety, and I'm a firm believer that you can be pro-police and pro-training, transparency, and trust. Those are not mutually exclusive things. And so some of the things that I want to focus on with respect to improving public safety in Louisville are making sure that we have the best trained police force in the entire country. We should be focusing on uh, ensuring that all of our police officers are trained in community policing that they're trained in some of the same things that social workers have training for, that they can work well with the neighborhoods that they serve, that they're reflective, that the officers are reflective of our community, and that they understand all of the things that police are being asked to do right now. And so I'd love to see the police officers as part of their training have 
uh, residencies where they spend some time with nonprofit organizations across the city that, that serve our community in different ways to get some of that. Really focusing on community policing where they're working with local members of the clergy, neighborhood leaders, formerly incarcerated individuals to help prevent crime and not just be responding to crime. I also think we need to increase the number of officers. Um, I, I, the FOP contract will likely pass this week, which will raise the starting salaries of, of LMPD officers. And we need more police officers to help prevent crime. We're likely, we also, a lot of people forget that we will likely be operating under a federal consent decree. And the next mayor will be operating under that. So the next mayor needs to be somebody who can work with the federal government in implementing these strategies to ensure that everyone in Louisville is safe and that everyone in Louisville trusts the police department to keep them safe and that they're not a threat to them. There are a lot of also programs that I feel passionately about that have worked well in other cities. Things like group violence intervention, where law enforcement works with neighborhood leaders, member of the clergy and others that really help reach out to individuals who might choose a life of crime and get them to move in a new direction to have a more productive, law-abiding, successful life. And then also, Finally, but not least importantly, is, is we cannot solve this with policing alone. We really need to focus on neighborhood improvement um, and on providing more hope and opportunity for our kids and our youth in the city. And so I'm a firm believer in investing in community centers, investing in after-school programs, investing in summer job programs to give our kids more opportunities for success, to give them hope to give them a greater understanding of what opportunities are out there in the world. And so all of those things, we need to go all in on all of those solutions to make Louisville the safer, healthier city that we all want it to be. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think those are all, all interesting ideas, a lot of good ideas in there. Um, but public safety in Louisville is going to be a very big challenge for whoever the next mayor is. Uh, and just looking at it, it kind of goes in multiple directions, right? You have uh, Louisville set records for the number of homicides in two straight years. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, there was a massive protest movement against the police after the killings of Breonna Taylor and David McAtee. And, you know, there's a lot of ideas and a lot of things that the mayor's office and the council together can do. Um, but, but you know, you talked a little bit about listening and, and, and different ways to, to, to build community. That seems like a big, a big theme that you're bringing forth for here. Um, but what would you do as the mayor to, to both find the ways that the community thinks uh, that public safety can best be solved and also just um, get everybody feeling uh, like we're moving in the right yeah. direction on public safety. No, I think that's a great point. One of the things that I think we need to do in the area of public safety, most importantly, but also in other areas, is we need to do the little things right. Because you're right, public safety is an enormous issue. It's an enormous challenge. We need our community to see that we are making steps towards achieving that goal of everyone in Louisville feeling safe and being safe. And so when I talk about doing the little things right, we need to get these abandoned cars off the road. As I've been running through precincts across the entire city, I don't know about you all, but everywhere I run, everywhere I drive, there are abandoned cars. And not just you see them once and never again. You see the same ones day after day, week after week, sometimes month after month. That just help brings down neighborhoods. People don't feel safe when there's an abandoned car, a wrecked car on the sidewalk. We need to clean up the sidewalks. We need to get rid of the graffiti. We need to fix streetlights. These are things that I've heard from neighbors when I've met with people in certain neighborhoods across the city and I meet with them at nighttime. They've taken me out on the street and shown me 
how the streetlights haven't worked for months or years. Those things have to be fixed. And I think as we show the city that we can do the little things right, they'll have confidence that we can then achieve these bigger goals. And another big area in that regard is vacant and abandoned lots. There are too many neighborhoods in the city that have unkept vacant and abandoned lots that are making that are bringing those neighborhoods down. And so I really want to create programs to implement programs that convert those vacant and abandoned lots into homes, into for sale homes in particular, so that people, when they own their homes, they're, they're revitalizing neighborhoods. They're having places where they can live. They're creating wealth for them and their family. That's going to be a big focus of mine as well. I have a couple follow-up questions about public safety. You talked about having more police, and oftentimes more police means more incarceration. And we have a, a pretty major crisis in our Louisville jail right now. We have so, a major crisis. Yeah, so what do you major. think we do about that? You know, if we have a, a bigger police force that might lead to more arrests, you know, what do we do about the sure. overcrowding in the jail and over incarceration. Well, first of all, my view is that more police that are trained in community policing should be working to prevent crime, working with the neighborhood on neighborhood improvements, not on arresting more people per se. And you're right, we do have a jail crisis. One of the things that's really frustrating to me is if you look at our current jail population, about 30% of those who are incarcerated in our city's jail right now are there on bails of less than $1,000. We have, as you mentioned earlier, we have record-breaking number of murders this year. Two-thirds of those murders are unsolved. So those who are creating the most violent crimes in our community are not being arrested when those who are there on missing a bench warrant or not violent criminals are still in jail. And so I totally agree that's, that's not right. We need to focus on arresting those who are committing violent crimes. We need to focus on, on those who are committing domestic violence, which is an area that our city has let slip over the past few years as they've gotten rid of the de- domestic violence unit. Um, that is, those are the areas where we need to focus on it. And so, again, my administration is going to be focused on community policing that's focused on preventing crime. And I also think we need more social workers and mental health providers that are responding to nonviolent emergencies. There's a pilot program that needs to be funded and implemented immediately and expanded in this community so that if we get a lot of 911 calls in Louisville right now for people that are thinking of committing suicide, for example, there are, there are trained professionals that are not police officers who are better equipped to respond to those type of non, those emergency calls. And so we as a community need to send out those type of social workers or mental health providers. It's been very successful in cities like Eugene, Oregon, and Denver. And I want to make sure that those programs are successful in Louisville as well. Yeah, we talked about that pilot program on the podcast, and I'm excited to see um, what happens when they implement it. My second follow-up question is about the juvenile detention center. So Metro uh, defunded the youth detention center a couple years ago, and lately with you know the the rise in violent crime um people have been talking about whether we need to reopen it or is there some better alternative and so would you consider reopening the youth detention center do you think that there's a better program to avoid having to have a youth detention center what would you do about that yes i would i would reopen it i would also focus on on other programs as well 
I would um, focus on things like restorative justice. That's an important program. Also, what I've heard from families, from families who have been the victims of crime, from families who are um, who are the parents or guardian of juveniles who have been um, incarcerated, being close to them helps the kids get back after they, they deal with their, their, their legal issues, that helps them get back on a path to success. And so right now, the situation that we have where juveniles are being taken far, far away from here, or oftentimes those who do need to be arrested for violent crimes aren't because of just the travel time associated and the, the, um, the, the administrative challenge burden on the officers right now. It just isn't working. And so I do support doing that, but I also support programs that are going to provide education, provide other experiences to our youth who have gotten ensnared in the legal system so that they can have a new path in life, so that they also can have hope and opportunity to succeed without being involved in crime. All right. Thanks for answering my impromptu questions. There. No problem. <laughs> um, so you've also done a lot of work as an investor and community leader on development projects in Louisville's downtown area. And so, you know, along with the police protests in 2020, um, a significant number of people have spent time reevaluating the way that Louisville has been developed in the 21st century. Um, do you think that the movement that took place in 2020 has impacted any of the work um, that's being done downtown or that you've done with the Greenberg Group? So let me say right now, I'm focused on running for mayor. And so professionally, my really only involvement right now is, as you mentioned earlier, at the top of the program is a, a co-owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling. But I am spending the vast, nearly every waking hour running for mayor. Mm-hmm. That is my focus. But the events of 2020, while maybe not perfect, did not professionally impact me, they've certainly personally impacted me. And they've certainly impacted the way I view the job of mayor of Louisville and what the goals and focus needs to be. And we really need what it is made clear to everyone, whether if you didn't know it before, you certainly know it now, that we as a community have ignored certain parts of our city. And we need to take this once in a lifetime opportunity with federal money coming in under the American Rescue Plan, under the infrastructure bill, to invest in parts of our community that have been overlooked for my entire lifetime. We need to invest in infrastructure. We need to invest in grocery stores. We need to invest in healthcare facilities. We need to invest in public transportation. We need to invest in these things that have been overlooked for way too long. And so, yes, um, the, uh, the events of 2020 impacted me, and I hope they impacted everyone in our city. Uh, yeah, so if you do become mayor, um, you know, there is a balance that has to be struck between the concerns that citizens bring around the issue of gentrification and, you know, the need that we have as a city to have a vibrant and exciting downtown that attracts new residents and attracts people to come here for conferences and everything else. Uh, it's a balance. Uh, tell us a little bit how you would strike that balance if you get elected. Well, I think let me talk about downtown development and also let me talk about uh, gentrification issues and displacement a little bit separately. First, I'm a firm, firm believer that we need an incredibly strong, vibrant, energetic downtown. We need thousands of more people who are living downtown. That will help bring commercial activity downtown. It'll bring more events downtown. It'll make it a thriving, uh, beating heart of this entire city. 
And so we need to do things in the short term, like having uh, parking holidays, free parking holidays, or remove every barrier for people to come downtown, let people park for free. We need to have food trucks and picnic tables on the weekends. We need to have more uh, festivals so that people are safely coming out to experience downtown until the business activity and the conventions return. We also need people living downtown. And so I've got a whole plan of things to do that I'm happy to talk about to really re-energize downtown, not just to where it was before the pandemic, but to where it needs to be as a neighborhood where thousands and thousands of people live, where people shop, where people come to have fun. There's also the issue of gentrification. And one thing that I have learned over the past year from listening to people across the entire city, and particularly in low-income areas that are most concerned about gentrification, is that people who live in neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, need to be a part of the planning process and need to be a part of the development process. We need to involve, involve them in plans that other people propose or what their ideas are for what the city can do or what the nonprofit sector can do to make their neighborhood a better place while they can still live in that neighborhood. And so that is absolutely critical. Um, and so we need to focus on improving public transportation. We need to focus on um, improving affordable housing and things like that as well, which I'd love to talk about. Um, but I think listening to people in the community and engaging them in the community is extremely important. And so that's why um, that is going to be important to me as I go about helping to facilitate investments in community that are going to improve communities, make them safer, but make them places where people who currently live there and want to stay there can remain and can affordably remain. All right. Well, last real question. Uh, but universal access to high quality, free and full day pre-K is a major issue for this campaign. Uh, would your administration commit to ensuring permanent access to that type of education for Louisville's three and four year olds? Yes. An emphatic yes. I think that is critically important. I mean, universal pre-K is, is critically important. And right now, as we've talked about it, we, as we've touched on, Louisville is unfortunately on the map for some of the wrong reasons right now. We need to put Louisville back on the map for a right reason. And one way I think we can do that is by implementing universal pre-K for all three- and four-year-olds. It's a very expensive proposition. What I think we should do right now is we have great philanthropies, great uh, foundations in Louisville with hundreds of millions of dollars of assets. But if you look around the country, there are philanthropic organizations with hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. And we as a city should be leading the charge, working with our current uh, pre-K and early childhood educators, working with JCPS, working with other nonprofit organizations. And we should be putting together a proposal to go out to the largest foundations in this country and say, here's a 10-year plan for universal pre-K in Louisville. Help put us on the map for the right reason. As mayor, I want to help lead that charge and make universal pre-K a reality because every bit of research you see shows that when kids start their education early and get off on the right start with early childhood education, that is a key determinant in how successful their life will be. And one of the things that I want my legacy as mayor to be, that every child in, in this city had the opportunity to succeed and they had the opportunity to succeed because they had preschool starting at age three. All right, last but not least, how can people learn more about your campaign and get involved with you? 
Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, they can certainly go to my website at greenbergformayor.com. They can also follow along on social media, either using the hashtag RunWithCraig, or I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, it's been really fun to post a lot about the runs that I've been doing and the people I've been meeting as I've been going about running about the entire city, uh, the events I've been going to, the people I've been learning from. And so I'd encourage people to uh, either sign up for communications all of our contact information is on our website. would love to hear from you. would love for people to get involved. There's going to be a lot to do in 2022, but I'm so excited to continue campaigning for mayor and even more excited about the opportunity to work with people to be mayor of our great city. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. We also have a newsletter where you can read our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you 